Well, last week I listed some commonly believed uh, dangers of religion in order to provide, uh, to, to examine their possible impacts upon the role of religion in politics. These are, some of these are listed on the board. Uh, they take a long while to put up, uh, so I'll just go through them. Uh, last week uh, I mentioned, uh, I examined one in great detail, and some aspects of four, uh, which is that one, the numbers have somehow disappeared, uh, and uh, uh, in a bit less detail. I argued that the general picture of religion as inherently or especially prone uh, to the promotion of violence was based on a number of confusions and that when these were unpacked there was much less reason to single out religion in the standard way as posing a peculiar threat of violent disruption to civic peace. Similar considerations were explored in connection with the idea that religion particularly religious difference, was essentially a divisive element in democratic societies, and I paid particular uh, attention to tendencies and movements in contemporary religion that mitigate against divisiveness and in favour of toleration. I mentioned uh, six in passing, and since it's not directly relevant to our topic, that's the last one, um, uh, I'll say no more of it except to note that judgments and feelings of guilt uh, are not necessarily bad things, contrary to what some popular psychological theories tend to hold. Genuine recognition of one's guilt and a sense of remorse for deliberate wrongdoing can be spurs to self-understanding, reform or self-improvement and, and to necessary acts of reparation. When people speak pejoratively of Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt, they should be referring to a crippling sense of wretchedness, often over trivial offences or no offences at all, such that the agent is actually inhibited from self-understanding and growth. I don't doubt that people, and not only Catholics and Jews, have suffered from such an affliction, but it's a distortion of a healthy sense of guilt, which sadly many people lack to their own detriment and, more importantly, to that of their victims. It's an irony of contemporary politics that apologies which should involve admission of guilt have become ritualised as a way of avoiding or deflecting guilt and sidestepping full acknowledgement and acceptance of its consequences. The telltale sign of this is the frequency with which such apologies are rendered in conditional form and responsibility shifted to the victim. If I have offended Jones, or anyone, then I am truly sorry. <laughs> Usual subtext, no resignation, resignation, contrition, restrictive action can be expected. Today I'm going to concentrate on two and three and the arguments of political theorists about them. Uh, they are uh, the second and third there. Uh, I shall probably not get to say anything about five in these lectures. With regard to two, uh, I shall concentrate upon the debate about what I called last week restrictionism or exclusionism, which is concerned with the appropriate reasons that can be offered in the public arena for important policy proposals, especially those that involve as most do, some coercion of citizens by law. This requires religious citizens to exercise what Brian McGraw has usefully labelled deliberative restraint in their dealings with their non-religious compatriots. As for three, uh, the worry about uh, autonomy has different aspects. One concern is that certain groups or some of their members are not oriented to the good of the society they live in 
but to a foreign society or power. This is a problem about divided or alien loyalties and is part of the reason why John Locke exempted Catholics and Muslims, who both had strong internationalist loyalties, from the tolerance he thought the state should extend to religious believers. The worry still continues in suspicion in Western democracies of Muslim citizens because of international jihad movements often associated with violence. The suspicion of Catholic loyalty to foreign powers has disappeared in the West, though it's related to the apprehension about Catholic politicians that persisted in the United States until the election of President Kennedy. This worry was not in that case, of course, about foreign military intervention or its like, but about the external dictation of moral judgments related to public policy. In the event, this proved a groundless fear, but it raised the question sharply about how such externally imposed judgments could or could not be authentic in terms of the basis of liberal democracy. This externality is now less focused on the geographically external, though some of that remains, but on externality in a more general and deeper sense. The idea is that the common tasks of a multicultural liberal democracy require a certain sort of autonomy in thinking and deciding that all religious people lack when compared to the non-religious in their midst. The focus of this, uh, for this autonomy is on a form of neutral reason-giving that can and should be the currency of argumentative exchange between autonomous citizens about significant public issues. This is called variously public reason or secular reason, the variations being dependent on the different accounts given of its nature and of the nature of secularity. This is relevant to a range of controversial issues on which various religious allegiances have seemed suspect as factors in the determination of public policy in a pluralistic democracy. Examples are abortion, divorce, euthanasia, homosexuality and assisted reproduction, amongst others. Such suspicions have extended to less directly moral areas, such as the provision of religious education in state schools or state-supported schools, publicly sponsored prayer and religious references, and the wearing of certain forms of Muslim clothing by women. In all these areas, there is the suspicion that religious people resort to the wrong sort of reasons for determining public policy, partly because they are not autonomous themselves, and even more because they do not respect the autonomy of their fellow non-religious citizens. There's a great deal of philosophical dispute about the concept and ideal of personal autonomy, and even those who agree roughly about what it is disagree about what role it should play in the foundations of liberal democracy. Some think it essential, others more, are more relaxed. John Rawls, for instance, developed his early theory of justice in a way that relied upon a strong sense of autonomy for citizens in that a commitment to civic virtue in a liberal democracy seemed to require it. In his later theory, Rawls is less insistent on this, with the consequence that he develops a sense of the public currency in reasons, what he calls public reason, which is more relaxed than the secular reason uh, that other liberal theorists, such as Robert Audi, advocate. It seems to me plausible to link these issues of autonomy and the drive for a form of neutral public reason, as I've done, though it's possible to treat the neutral reason demand in independence of the autonomy question. The link is plausible in view of the key role played by an idea of mutual respect for the autonomy of democratic citizens with respect to the choice of lifestyle and of associated comprehensive doctrines, as Rawls calls them, about the right way to live. This is illustrated uh, somewhat in the example I used last week of the uh, Australian uh, uh, vigorous feminist uh, who called upon the uh, Australian uh, conservative Catholic uh, opposition leader 
to keep his rosaries off her ovaries. Uh, I think there was an idea of autonomous use of the body involved in this particular uh, remark. The concept of autonomy has been construed by philosophers and others in many different ways. In particular, there are stronger and weaker versions of the notion. People of faith who regard their commitment to religion as deep and rooted in religious community and tradition may well resist notions of autonomy that celebrate revision of belief and continual openness to choice of destiny and lifestyle. Such a strong conception of autonomy sometimes pictures the agent as an almost Promethean constructor of personal life plans geared to personally chosen values and outlooks. The idea seemed at least implicit in John Rawls's remarks in The Theory of Justice when, invoking Kant, he says, quote, a person is acting autonomously when the principles of his action are chosen by him as the most adequate possible expression of his nature as a free and equal rational being, unquote. Whether religious people are right to reject this picture, if they do, is one thing. But whether such rejection is inimical to full participation in liberal democratic polities is another. Indeed, there seem to be less full-blooded conceptions of autonomy that may have... Skip my thing, sorry. Uh, that may have logical advantages quite independently of religious commitments. <clears throat> the degree to which the rich account of autonomy is indebted to a picture of the individual as entirely free of dependence on others, epistemically, morally and politically, is surely unacceptable philosophically. In epistemology, its Cartesian-like individualism fails adequately to acknowledge properly the nature of our deep reliance on the testimony and expertise of others, both in intellectual matters and in everyday life. In morals, it somewhat similarly fails to recognise the depth of the individual's connection to upbringing, community and tradition, and even in politics it's arguably, it arguably gives rise to a distorted understanding of authority. There are deep waters here into which we cannot plunge in this short series of lectures, since there's now an ever-expanding body of philosophical literature uh, on testimony, reliance on experts and the associated topic of trust in others and its relation to trust in oneself. The contributors, as usual with philosophers, disagree amongst themselves about nearly everything on these topics, except that our dependence on others is comprehensive, unavoidable and widespread, whatever the nature of its justification. The so-called reductionists and anti-reductionists, I'm always pictured as an anti-reductionist, are agreed on this. But if this extreme picture of autonomy is unviable, there are surely less radical versions that can be recommended and that have the virtue of accounting at least in part for the importance of the idea for liberal thought. An attachment to the value of autonomy trails with it, I think, a spectrum of conceptions of autonomy, some more intellectually defensible than others. I've attempted uh, my account of intellectual autonomy elsewhere, but here I will merely say that it can admit an inevitable connection to and respect for traditions, but involve interpretation, reflection, criticism and indeed rejection of particular traditions that have been influential in the individual's life. This uh, account need have no hint of the neo-Cartesian picture rejected earlier, nor, nor need it have any flavour of a life lived in the spirit of Karl Popper's odd account of scientific inquiry as a constant quest for exposure of falsehood rather than discovery of truth. In the case of religious people, many of them, especially those that are most immersed in a community respectful of tradition and authority, may be resistant to strong versions of autonomy while accepting some weaker ones on the spectrum. 
weaker ones or one. If this is so, then it may be, and I think it is, sufficient for valid participation in the politics of a liberal democracy that they accept the value of a sort of autonomy that Brian McGraw has called independence. This involves resistance to a certain sort of domination of one's choices, such that it's impossible to choose an alternative way of life. Such a freedom or independence seems integral to any sort of worthwhile life, and its protection and promotion should more plausibly be a central value of liberal democracy. Accepting this for themselves and others may require more of some religious people and communities than they would like, and rejection of it may well legitimate state intervention or withdrawal of support. I should add that my own commitment to, to autonomy as an element in the good life is stronger than this minimum of independence, though weaker than the strong one I rejected, but I don't regard it as a requirement of participation, I don't regard my view as a requirement of participation in liberal democratic politics. So secularity and the wall of separation. In any case, these sorts of concerns have inspired various thinkers to urge restrictions upon the kind of reasons that can be used to support policy in the public arena. And this is also connected to the widespread idea that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. In spite of the connection, the two outlooks have distinctly different emphases. The former is principally concerned with the intellectual procedures of individual believers, where the latter pays attention to institutions and matters of public status. Both, however, tend to support and draw sustenance from a certain idea of secularity that requires careful treatment. Consider first church and state. The United States probably endorses one of the strongest versions of formal separation of church and state in democratic countries. The First Amendment to the US Constitution states in part that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And Article 6 of the Constitution bans religious tests for public office. These make no reference to a wall of separation, though Thomas Jefferson used the phrase in correspondence, apparently. And the amendment has been variously interpreted to rule out many things that may not have been intended, such as prohibiting the state funding of religious schools or the wearing or displaying of religious symbols in public institutions. Others argue that the amendment merely bans an established church and ensures freedom of religious practice. It's been claimed that in its origins, the separation involved a concern for religion rather than a fear of it, since it is freedom of religion and an ideal of religious toleration that lies behind the separation. Indeed, powerful religious arguments for the separation, explicitly using the phrase wall of separation, were urged by the Baptist minister Roger Williams as early as 1644. More restrictive interpretations of the clause seem at best inference from the text rather than explicit in it. In other Western democracies, the wall has either not been fully accepted or has been interpreted differently, as for instance in European countries like Great Britain, Norway, Denmark, Iceland and Finland, which have established churches, and several other countries that give varying degrees of recognition to a particular religion. Many other democracies offer some state financial support to religious schools. On the other hand, some democracies, such as France and Turkey, have hardened secularity into a form of secularism that many religious people understandably regard as an unduly privileged rival ideology. In essence, the issue about the wall is symptomatic of a deeper problem with the understanding of secularism or the secular state itself. The basic idea of what we might call secularity is that there's a realm of human activity that is best governed 
and administered in accordance with goals that are not essentially religious. As John Locke put it in his letter concerning toleration, quote, all the power of civil government relates only to men's civil interests, is confined to the care of the things of this world and hath nothing to do with the world to come. Here Locke seems to be echoing Christ's own view in the Gospels. Rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's uh, in several of the synoptic Gospels. So it is plausible to see secularity as built on this difference of concern at the heart of politics and of religion. This foundation need invoke no fears about the dangers of religion, though it would have more significance if such fears were justified. It, not, it need not be hostile to or dismissive of religion, though it would clearly count against established or state-favoured churches, and as Locke goes on to argue, in favour of state toleration of diverse religions. It involves the rejection of the idea that uniformity of religion enforced by the state is essential for civic stability and progress, but not necessarily the idea that religious commitment can support such stability and improvement. Nonetheless, the secularity model faces certain problems concerning the areas in which the concerns of Caesar and God conflict or overlap, or in Locke's terms, the way in which the things of this world and those of the next might interact. Indeed, it seems clear that many religions, perhaps most, insist that the path of salvation involves adherence to norms of public behaviour as well as the cultivation of interior dispositions and a commitment to public worship. Such norms need not conflict with principles and policies that guide the secular state, since some, some religious norms, such as the commandment to honour one's parents, will be largely a matter of indifference to state authorities, while others, such as a prohibition on murder, will normally fully accord with the laws of democratic and, for that matter, most polities. Yet there are clearly areas in which moral outlooks derived from religion can conflict with public policies and laws supported by non-religious arguments. Issues such as abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality are contemporary examples, and slavery is a significant example from the past. Often defenders of the secular state respond to this problem with strongly restrictive claims about the nature of secularity. Two of the most prominent are the American philosophers Robert Audi and John Rawls, who in different ways try to restrict religious reasons from having a valid place in determining laws and public policy. Clearly this reaches beyond a concern for separation of the institutions of church and state and more directly constrains individual believers. There are many variations on the position. In Hardy's version, citizens may have and offer religious reasons for some public policy, but they also must have and be willing to offer at least one evidentially adequate and motivationally sufficient secular reason. They must have, just to repeat, and be willing to offer at least one evidentially adequate and motivationally sufficient secular reason, even though they may have and offer religious reasons as well. Audi, himself a believing Protestant, departs from those who would argue that citizens should not even be motivated at all by religious reasons in their approach to public policy. It's as well that he does, since that sort of restriction is both psychologically unrealistic and an attempt to deny religious citizens full enjoyment of their religious commitments. It's sometimes said liberal democracies succeed politically because they have privatised religion. There's a clear sense in which this is true and welcome, what religion you can have is no longer determined by public authority but by private conscience. Moreover, there's a sense in which conscience is a private matter 
and increasingly decisions about behaviour, including political behaviour, are viewed by many religious people, especially Christians, as matters of conscience. Yet there's also a sense in which reference to privatising is misleading, since the practice of religion cannot be entirely private without being inauthentic. Religious believers need to worship publicly, obviously, and more significantly, they need to embody their convictions in practice. The nature of such embodiment is more disputable, but a faith that had little or no impact on one's daily life would surely be empty. As already mentioned, it's inevitable that some of these practices and beliefs will have a social and even a political impact. The important questions concern the nature and limits of such impact. Audi thinks that respect for the equal dignity of citizens in a liberal democracy prohibits citizens coercing others on the basis of religion, of religious doctrines that they do not share. Instead, political decisions should be based on a shared conception of secular reason. In Audi's version, this respect must be shown across the board of public policy. In Rawls's more complex version, it tends to be restricted to constitutional essentials. Both Rawls and Audi stress that their concern is less with the dangers of divisiveness and violence, though that's indirectly relevant, uh, than with a certain basic moral political uh, value of mutual respect or reciprocity involved in what Rawls calls fair terms of cooperation, an important idea in Rawls. I want to give a brief account of Rawls's position with some attention to the ways that it agrees with but departs from Audi's. Rawls has remarked that Audi's notion of secular reasons is ambiguous between the sort of public reason that Rawls advocates and a version of public reason that he rejects. The crucial issue is the idea of reasons that can be shared by all citizens in a spirit of mutual respect for their equal standing in the cooperative venture making for stable, pluralistic, liberal democracy. Rawls doesn't think that the reasons must actually be shared by citizens, and neither does Audi. It's rather that they must be capable of being shared by them. The reasons must be accessible to all reasonable citizens uh, in the public arena. This involves more than merely understanding the reasons and less than actually accepting them as one's own. As Rawls puts it, discussing the extreme case of a proposal to deny some citizens religious liberty, we must give them reasons they can not only understand, as Servetus could understand why Calvin wanted to burn him at the stake, uh, but reasons we might reasonably expect that they, as free and equal citizens, might reasonably also accept. Incidentally, Rawls is wrong about uh, Calvin. Uh, he didn't want to burn him at the stake. He wanted to have him beheaded. <laughs> the point seems to be... He was, in fact, burned at the stake against uh, Calvin's reason. The point seems to be that public reason demarcates reasons that may be legitimately deployed in public <coughs> debates at least about constitutional essentials, but it does not mandate actual acceptance by individual citizens of the particular reasons deployed, only the possibility of such acceptance. Significantly unlike Audi, Rawls thinks that this proviso, as he calls it, excludes not only religious reasons, but also all reasons that are special to philosophical and ideological comprehensive doctrines, such as utilitarianism, Kantian or Millian liberalism, and even, and especially, his own comprehensive liberalism with its strong version of autonomy as propounded in a theory of justice. This is a much wider exclusion than Audi envisages, but as we shall see, it's probably a fairer account of what uh, the inaccessibility idea might involve. On Audi's account, there are serious problems in deciding just what are secular reasons. 
since the criterion of acceptability, or as it is sometimes put, uh, accessibility, that both he and Rawls use, is likely to rule out many non-religious reasons as public reason. A non-utilitarian can indeed see what the basis is for the utilitarian's to, to her objectionable policy proposals, but she cannot share that basis as a reason that is acceptable, though not actually accepted. In this, she is rather like Servetus. Or consider the difference between environmentalists who want to protect the non-human natural environment because that's in the long-term interests of human beings, and on the other hand, deep ecologists who advocate such protection because of the intrinsic values of nature itself. They can understand one another in a fashion, but they cannot view the other's key premises as even in principle acceptable in deciding significant policy issues about the environment. On what basis could we declare one of these an exercise of public or secular reason and the other not? If it's said that the non-utilitarian or environmentalist can at least come to share the opposing commitments by becoming a utilitarian or a deep ecologist, this is no doubt true, but the non-religious are equally well placed to share the religious reasons by converting. Or more interestingly still, they could come to accept uh, some premise as fundamental where the religious accepted as God-given, something that I think does happen fairly often in uh, history. Audi's position gives some credence to those religious thinkers who complain that what they call liberalism ends up privileging non-religious pictures of human life over religious ones. But there's less to complain of in Rawls's position, which has an even-handedness and consistency apparently lacking in Audi's. But that consistency seems to be purchased at a considerable price, a price that Audi avoids. Before discussing that price, however, it's worth noticing several other aspects of Rawls's position. One is that Rawls, as earlier remarked, restricts his exclusionism to constitutional essentials, or as he sometimes puts it, matters of basic justice. This seems to contrast with the wider scope of public reason in Audi's position, and again gives more room for deliberation on public policy that is explicitly religious. So Rawls insists that public reason places no restriction on the use of non-public reason in the background culture of civil society. And more recently, Audi allows for something similar, uh, which is, I think, a change in his position. This is an important point because it softens some of the impact of Rawls' ex exclusionism and wards off criticisms from supporters of religion who think that public reason allows no scope at all for the expression of religious convictions in public debates. Rawls thinks there should be plenty of room for this in the media, in universities and in various associations. But public reason is the appropriate measure and ideal for judges, legislators, chief executives and other government officials in their deliberations and decisions regarding fundamental policies and also for ordinary citizens when they consider what reasons such officials should act upon and when they come to vote. Such public reason will be bolstered by the overlapping consensus achieved when reasonable citizens from different faith communities, as well as those adhering to non-religious comprehensive doctrines, converge from different starting points upon the same canons of public reasoning. It can be agreed that such convergence is possible and usually a good thing, but a question remains whether it's the only legitimate way to conduct public debate in a democracy, even about constitutional essentials. A further softening of Rawls's position occurs in his introduction to the paperback edition of, liberal, of political liberalism, 
his later book, where in support of what he calls a wide view of public reason, he argues that religious or comprehensive reasons can be used even concerning constitutional essentials. Uh, As long as, quoting Rawls, in due course public reasons given by a reasonable political conception are presented sufficient to support whatever the comprehensive doctrines are introduced to support, unquote. The obscure content of due course makes it uh, unclear whether Rawls's concession is huge or small. If it permits someone to offer solely religious reasons when at some much later time they produce public reasons, then we may not know at the time, at the relevant decision times, whether they are reasoning legitimately or not. More importantly still, they may not know it themselves, since if they have access to them at the time, then they would surely produce them at that time. On the other hand, if due course is more restricted in time and access, then the position has shifted only minimally. The price Rawls seems to pay for his broader picture of exclusionism is that it exposes the weakness in trying to restrict the scope of democratic argument. Why should voters or legislators be somehow prohibited from using and propounding reasoning based upon contestable large-scale philosophical outlooks, even when this is all they employ, when discussing and deciding upon important questions of public policy? Judges are, I think, a rather different matter, since they are reasonably under stronger legal constraints to order their decision-making. The basic insights and principles of comprehensive moral and political doctrines are not established by some commonplace, easily adjudicable calculus, and that's why such deep disagreements exist and persist. This doesn't mean that the insights are irrational or the debate and discussion about them futile, but they involve something that usually involves something visionary that's not to be captured in a comfortable formula. The conflicts between egalitarian and elitist political philosophies, communitarian and capitalist individualism, animal liberation and human speciesism, or deep ecologists and sustainable environmentalists often reach to constitutional essentials, and if they don't fit comfortably with Audi's model of secular reason or Rawls' as public reason, so much the worse for the models. It's always possible that people's values and outlooks can be changed for the better by the injection of novel moral and political perspectives into the public arena, even where those novel outlooks are not fully accepted or even acceptable in in whatever sense that amounts to. An example of this is the way that Australian Aboriginal religious beliefs about their harmony with the earth have supported attitudes to the environment that have influenced uh, non-Aboriginal attitudes even where they do not, the non-Aborigines do not, and could not share the Aboriginal religious beliefs and regard the apparent ontology supporting them as bizarre. Another risk is that harmful elements in uh, prevailing comprehensive outlooks will fail to be modified or removed by restricting the capacity of alternative comprehensive outlooks to compete fully in the public arena. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the anti-slavery movement confronted deeply held moral convictions about the unequal worth of human beings and brought philosophical and very often religious arguments to bear upon that great evil in ways that helped change public policy by overturning the secular reason consensus of the day. Rawls considers the anti-slavery issue and argues that although the Christian abolitionists appealed directly to religion, they could have done so 
thinking that this was the best way to bring about a just society, quote, in which the ideal of public reason could eventually be honoured, unquote. But it's hard to see how such an abstract possibility can bear upon what people are actually required to do. Moreover, it's not at all clear that the religiously motivated abolitionists would have endorsed anything like Rawls's idea of public reason had it been put to them. Interestingly, although Audi does not discuss such cases, he has recently, in his 2011 book, conceded in a brief comment that his principle of secular reason is defeasible, so that, in cases of dire emergency, where religious reasons could decide the outcome favourably, they should be used. His example is the need to pass laws to prevent a Nazi gaining power. And although he obviously thinks of this as exceptional, the concession opens the way to different interpretations of the sort of gravity of dangers to the community that will allow such exceptions. Of course, the example also reminds us of the dreadful failure of so many religious people and authorities to produce religious reasons against the rise of Nazi racist policies in Germany in the 1930s. Part of this failure was, in fact, the way secular reasons to do with nationalism, economics and grievances against the terms of the peace settlement at Versailles overwhelmed the religious consciences of far too many. Another problem with the exclusionist project is that it's likely to further promote an undesirable process in which religious people produce spurious reasons for the policies they support. We have examples of this already. Those Roman Catholics who genuinely condemn contraception do so for reasons that have nothing to do with the alleged inefficiency of condoms in preventing the transmission of AIDS. Yet, such is, yet it is such supposed dangers that uh, many of them cite as secular arguments. I don't mean to suggest that religious people cannot sincerely advance reasons for public policies that do not rely upon specifically religious premises, such as those drawn from revelation or religious authority or tradition. Indeed, in the debates about those contentious moral issues mentioned earlier, many religious participants sincerely deploy arguments explicitly meant to invoke natural reason, as they call it, as in appeals to the dignity of the human person or the likely damaging social effects of, for instance, euthanasia, or the natural law tradition endorsed by many Catholics and others. Such resources are clearly available and have as much validity as various reasoning styles deployed by the non-religious when they don't use the same resources. Indeed, for the religious, there are theological arguments to suggest that it's in the nature of God's creative power that such resources should be available to human persons. My only point against Audi, Rawls and Company is that where specifically religious reasons are relevant or go beyond the non-religious reasons or seem to their adherents to do so, there seem to be good grounds for allowing their use, even if the religious citizen has no non-religious reasons for her position. These objections apply pretty clearly to Audi's project, but how much they apply to rules depends on just what the terms constitutional essentials or basic justice are meant to cover. If it's restricted to obvious basic rights such as freedom of speech and religion or equality before the law, then his position has more plausibility. But even these are open to interpretation and it still seems restrictive to rule out any recourse dependent entirely upon, upon a comprehensive doctrine. Moreover, a famous footnote, uh, in a famous footnote in political liberalism, 
Rawls extends the scope of such terms to cover legislation on abortion. Most religious, as basic matters of basic justice, most religious opponents of abortion in fact employ what seem to be secular or non-religious arguments for their advocacy, even if they have religious reasons as well. The question is, of course, whether they must do so, apart from the pragmatic consideration that they're often more likely to persuade their opposition if the, if the arguments have a non-religious flavour. Another question that this example raises is how far the concept of a religious reason reaches. Must there be explicit use of a, of a specifically religious concept, such as God or grace or the prophet, or should the exclusion stretch to reasons that the speaker wouldn't have or advocate unless relying upon a religious source, such as an authority like the Pope or a text like the Koran. If we go down the path of such wider understandings of religious reasons as some writers have advocated, then all hell is in danger of breaking loose, if I, if I may be permitted momentary recourse to a religious concept. For one thing, it's hard to know whether a person accepts the reasons only because they have come from a religious source or because one start or because once he or she was alerted to them the reasons appealed independently of them this may well be the case with issues like abortion <clears throat> where the pro-life supporters appeal to philosophical and metaphysical concepts about the status of the unborn in a way that has actually been promulgated by episcopal spokesmen I say spokesmen because most of them are men but appears to require no reference to, explicit reference to religion in debates about the matter. Or consider what is called Catholic social teaching, which has a reasonably long history, but gets explicit formulation first in Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, and then in Pius XI's Quadragesimo Anno in 1931. These were followed by a succession of papal encyclicals, bishops' pastoral letters and so on, up to the present day, addressing social, political and economic questions to do with the alleviation of poverty, promotion of peace, the evils of various political movements, notably communism and laissez-faire capitalism, objections to the nuclear arms race, and so on. The argumentation in these documents drew upon such things as the unacceptability of various bad consequences, certain natural law arguments, the concept of the common good, empirical facts, and arguments from scripture. Some of the principles enunciated were already common currency with various non-religious groups. Others were relatively novel, though they have since been widely accepted on their own merits, notably the principle of subsidiarity, uh, which was enunciated first by the Pope in the 19th century and has now become deeply, <coughs> deeply entrenched in European Union, law, European Union law. It states that a matter ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest or least centralised authority capable of addressing that matter effectively. I only wish that uh, current papal uh, outlooks had embodied, embodied this principle more effectively within my communion. Now, whatever one thinks of Catholic social teaching and its supporting arguments, and I have myself certain reservations with some of it, it would surely be weird to insist that Catholic citizens not use it in public debates and advocacy and deciding how to vote on matters involving basic justice unless they could show that their respect for the arguments was entirely independent of their respect for its religious source. There is a problem with the concept uh, of religious reasons uh, as a par and a parallel one with its contrast term secular reason 
that this discussion helps to raise. The contrast is put forward by the exclusionists, as I call them, and it suggests that secular reasons belong to the province of reason proper, where religious reason is a sort of pretender. There is, of course, a real question about the nature of faith and the relation between faith and reason, and it's a question much debated in theology, with many different positions argued for. But it's clear that mainstream religions put a great weight upon the importance of reason in explaining their religious views, defending them against critics, both religious and non-religious, and seeking to show how their beliefs are either rational, reasonable, or at least not in conflict with reason. Whether these efforts are successful or not, the result is that it's rare for religiously-based arguments in the public sphere to be bluntly take it or leave it in character. Rather, they are suffused with common reasoning of one sort or another, which can be challenged or engaged in a variety of ways. This point is important uh, in connection uh, with something about the restrictionist position that I've not so far treated directly, though it's highly relevant to the position and the debate. Rawls and Audi, or Audi as I don't know, along with many of their comrades in argument, think that allowing religious reasons a fuller role is inconsistent with a certain mutual respect that lies at the heart of liberal democracy. Both Rawls and Audi stress that their concern is less with the dangers of divisiveness and violence, though that's clearly relevant, than with a certain basic moral political value of mutual respect or reciprocity involved in what Rawls calls fair terms of cooperation. But it's not at all clear that this respect requires restricting the resort to religious reasoning in the way exclusionists require. Indeed, it may be incompatible with it, since it's arguable that non-religious citizens should accord the religious convictions of their fellow citizens a a degree of respect that mirrors the mutual acknowledgement of equal standing in the community that is, or should be, part of the basis of democratic politics. This does not mean that they are required to abstain from criticism of religion or its manifestations. One can recognise that religious faith is part of the identity of fellow citizens and not have contempt for them on that account, but nonetheless reject that sort of identity for oneself and challenge various aspects of religious identity, including its contribution to political life. When religious conviction drives people to political statement or action, they must expect that the religious basis of their views and behaviour will come under close scrutiny and that they will be subject to some of the buffeting that inevitably accompanies the rough and tumble of political exchange. Sensitivity to the criticism of religiously inspired political activism is often excessive and sometimes seems a way of deflecting legitimate concerns, legitimate objections. In Australia, legitimate criticism of religious involvement in politics uh, has a history of being dismissed as sectarianism just as strong criticisms of Israel's policies towards the Palestinians have been routinely branded as anti-Semitic. Current concerns with shielding people from religious vilification have a respectable basis in avoiding real harm to individuals and groups and in bolstering the respect I mentioned earlier, but care must be taken that they do not insulate religious people from legitimate scrutiny and any negative conclusions that may arise from it. In any case, religious people can show the appropriate respect for their fellow citizens and honour fair terms of cooperation by means other than the recommended deliberative (coughs) restraint. I shall have more to say about this in Lecture 3 next week, but it takes the discussion more into the realm 
of the virtues appropriate to, civil to civility in politics and indeed more generally <coughs> in social exchanges. It involves attempts at understanding the viewpoints of those one disagrees with and locating value where possible in competing outlooks as well as much else that I hope to explore next week. Rather than pursuing some neutral sense of public reason generated by overlapping consensus, it may be enough that certain procedural rules and conditions are in place and that the mutual respect with which Liberals are so concerned is an established part of the culture. This respect does not require restrictions on what reasons can be offered for policies. It merely requires some basic agreement on how policies should be debated, analysed and decided, as well as the various attitudes I'm going to talk about later. Voting, as Nicholas Voltersdorf has pointed out, is an essentially democratic device for resolving deep differences when people have exhausted the possibilities of reason and advocacy. Basic agreement on democratic procedures and civilities will have to respect the equal standing of at least uh, adult citizens and substantial elements of the civil freedoms that are inherent in any form of liberal democracy, freedom of speech, assembly, movement and protest. Perhaps in the end this is all Rawls means by constitutional essentials, but at times he frequently means more. There are, there are, in addition, further arguments for encouraging religious and other comprehensive views to be publicly aired in the debate and decision-making processes around public policy. One is the fact that religious and moral traditions are not themselves monolithic, fixed and immutable. Religious authorities are inclined to present the outlooks of their communities as far more unified historically and in the present than they have been or are. Religions are indeed communities of meaning, as Stephen Carter and others like to say, but it's essential to meaning that it has an interpretive aspect, and the great religions have always been subject to differences of interpretation and understanding within the professing groups. Sometimes this is highly intellectual, sometimes it is local and instinctive. Nor can the significance of this be dismissed by reference merely to the idea of heresy, since apart from anything else, divergences of interpretation remain firmly rooted within what is called orthodoxy. This can be dramatically illustrated even in the history of very centrally controlled doctrinal communities such as Catholicism. Lively controversy has existed and continues within that tradition on the nature of grace and its operation, on the validity of moral casuistry, on the nature of papal authority, on the interpretation of scripture and on contentious moral issues such as contraception and abortion and many more topics could be cited. Allowing religion to role in public debate need not therefore assume that religious people will speak with an alarmingly uniform voice. It's also a defect of much of the debate about the role of religion in public life that it treats religious values as formative in too rigid a way. Moreover, the religious leadership is given a public role in defining that identity, which is often belied by the practice and belief of the ordinary members of the religious community as we saw in the statistics I provided in the first lecture. There is also a tendency for philosophers defending a role for religious discourse in a liberal democracy to endorse this implicitly by seeing most of the ways that life in a liberal society changes religion as destructive. Some of the critics, I think, of uh, uh, public reason and so on uh, fall into that uh, trap, as I see it. Yet it's clear that the pluralistic democratic process itself gives rise to changes that are arguably beneficial in the self-understanding of religious individuals. 
and in the religious community's interpretation of both doctrine and value. Typical liberal values such as liberty, autonomy and privacy have come to penetrate the religious consciousness of very many believers and are often given specifically religious support. And even when they are not fully endorsed, values related to them can develop. The development of uh, Roman Catholic consciousness on these matters is instructive here. In the 19th century and well into the 20th, Catholic leaders regularly denounced liberalism, freedom of conscience and the separation of church and state in ways that are now simply unthinkable. Though actually Sydney's Cardinal Pell occasionally seems to manage to think it. Uh, consider the view that, quote, freedom of conscience and worship is the proper right of each man and that this should be proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society. Freedom of conscience and worship is the proper right of each man and this should be proclaimed and asserted in every rightly constituted society. This proposition was denounced by Pius IX in 1864 in the encyclical Quanta Cura, which endorsed his predecessor Gregory XVI's condemnation. <coughs> he denounced it as insanity. Nowadays, as a result of experiencing the merits of liberal democratic societies, Catholics are as vociferous in support of these ideals as any other religious group. But they endorsed these values in practice long before their leaders came to change their tune. The same process can be seen at work in attitudes to contraception, where the leaders are now mostly silent, abortion, euthanasia and new technologies of reproduction. Authorities in any sphere are reluctant to admit to persistent errors, and this is particularly true uh, of the Catholic Church. I should say I am a Catholic again, so that I'm not <coughs> criticising the outside. Uh, which has managed to build an apparatus of authoritative teaching into its self-image in such a way that when it does change, it tends to produce a sort of institutional memory lapse to cover the dramatic nature of the change. This is clear in the teaching on liberty and democracy that I've just mentioned, and it's also true of usury and may well be happening with contraception. As a Catholic, it's my hope that in due course the manifold benefits of democratic forms and liberal protections of individual dignity will filter through to changes in the Church's governing structures and procedures. On the other, on the other side, <coughs> it should be stressed that there are ways in which the presence of religious arguments in the public arena can, Im can impact upon unbelievers. The area of applying genetic research, as well as the area of concern for the environment, have seen broadly religious ideas invoked by people who are not themselves conventionally religious. The idea, for instance, that there is something uh, impious or hubristic about proposals to dominate nature in certain ways or to transform human reproductive processes with genetic technology has very wide appeal. It's natural for many people to invoke here strictures against playing God, even if they don't believe in God. I don't want to endorse this manoeuvre wholeheartedly, for I find its application puzzling, especially in certain contexts, but I think that it offers something important to the debate. I'm sure it needs to be better understood. The environmental movement, as already noted, provides another example of the apparent intersection of what seem to be secular and religious reasons. Indeed, it can be argued that some developments of what are now seen as secular values, such as universal human rights and equal dignity for all people, had some of their beginnings in religious doctrines, as Locke, for instance, thought. Thank you.